Hey there, folks. Welcome to episode 31 of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. My name is Rob Woods, and this is the show for anyone who works in charity fundraising who wants ideas for how to raise more money, enjoy their job, and make a bigger difference even during the pandemic. Firstly, I just have to tell you some exciting news, which is that last week I discovered that our podcast has now been listened to more than 10,000 times. Uh, So to put that in context, that's all happened a relatively short time through the 30 episodes since we started in November 2019. So before we get going, I just wanted to say a huge thank you, firstly, to all our guests for sharing their time and their advice. And secondly, thanks to you, the listeners, both for listening, obviously, but also for sharing it on with your colleagues and your followers on social media. I've certainly learned that this podcasting lark does require a fair chunk of time and effort, but knowing that it's reaching and potentially helping more and more fundraisers all the time really does make that effort feel worthwhile to me. So thank you ever so much for your help. And in today's episode, we're going to look at an approach to fundraising for if you're a small charity or if you work for a cause which is relatively niche. So if that's the kind of charity you work for, or especially if you're a corporate fundraiser, I hope you're going to find today's interview really helpful. I'm about to share a conversation that I carried out a few weeks ago with Damien Chapman, who is currently fundraising director at the Charity for Civil Servants. Damien is a very experienced fundraiser who's led fundraising teams for several small charities over the years, including Police Care UK. And in particular, in this conversation, I wanted to hear more about his successful corporate partnership strategy when he worked at that charity. But before we get on to that, I wanted to get Damien's view on how the pandemic will affect decision-making about working habits in charities over the coming months. This episode of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast is brought to you by Bright Spot Mastery Programmes. So if you need to increase income in corporate partnerships or major donor and trust fundraising, these programmes will help. As well as the advanced strategies you learn on the training days, you receive one-to-one coaching to help you put those powerful techniques into practice. To find out more about the Corporate Mastery and Major Gifts Mastery programmes, head over to brightspotfundraising.co.uk. Damien Chapman, how are you? I'm very well, yourself? Very good, thank you. And yes, we're recording this still in turbulent times. How's locked, uh, lockdown life treating you, Damien? Oh, I am looking forward, so looking forward to being able to work in an office with real people again. Uh, I, I love a digital screen. I love talking to people. But there's only so many calls you can have by Zoom and Telegram and Microsoft Teams before you've had enough. Yeah, I've been uh, at my threshold for a while now, I have to say. Um, and so thank you for agreeing to this interview, albeit uh, via some remote software. I, I want to, to jump in. Firstly, on the subject of what you feel is different now, so many things about the world and the fundraising environment are different, but what a couple of the things are that you feel are different, but crucially, what the implications might be of those differences for us as fundraisers and in particular as fundraising leaders? Well, I think it's fair to say that everybody now has used the phrase uh, turbulent times, uh, new normal um th- th- these kinds of things are now forming into our own virtual bingo game now it doesn't matter which conference call you're on you've now got virtual bingo i have to keep reminding myself that 
I am living through a fundraising crisis that's part of a global pandemic that we have never seen in my lifetime, my parents' lifetime, my grandparents' lifetime, even my great-grandparents' lifetime. So to try and contextualize it and just say, oh, it's the new normal, it is to discount the fact that this is completely unprecedented within fundraising world, within global world. We, we go back to the 1918 era for the last global pandemic of this kind of size and scale. And what we didn't have back then was the approach to charitable activity and charitable organizations delivering at scale as part of the social fabric. So we can't really compare what was, life was like in the 1918 era to today's. There are things that we can learn. We can look at modeling and how charities and society came out of these kind of situations. And there's been lots of talk about that. But we can't rely on that when it comes to future forecasting, modeling, and even working out what our service delivery is going to look like. Yeah, absolutely. And even just down to whether we'll be going back to an ordinary office anytime soon, or whether it's economically possible for for most charities to afford the office space they used to. Um, so many things are different, and we're going to have to work out answers along the way. For me, it goes beyond that, because... When I started out in fundraising, I A, didn't know it was a career, and B, I didn't realize there were other people who did what I was doing. It took me three years in my work as a fundraiser to realize there were other people like me. Um, and that's how I found the IOF. I attended my very first event was the Yorkshire Regional Conference up in Scarborough. And that was my introduction to the fact that actually fundraising is a profession and career. It's not just something you did at university as part of Rag Week that evolved into working for a social cause as I ended up doing. But all of that led me to understand and realize and to a certain extent accept that if I wanted to progress my career and become a senior fundraising leader, I would have to move to London because that's where all the major charities were based. It's where all their offices were. It's where all the cost of living was through the roof. But it was the only way if you wanted to progress that far down your career as I wanted to do. So I always assumed I would be in London at some point in my lifetime to be able to do, to do what I wanted to do and what I love to do. That now has changed. And there is no need for charities to be based in London with all of their architecture, all of their infrastructure and all of their team focused in one small geographic footprint, along with seven and a half million other people within the greater London area, all trying to commute to work between the hours of 8am and 9.30am and trying to get home between 4.30pm and 6pm, hoping that the trains are even blinking running. And then, after exploring some of the implications of the pandemic on where fundraising work will increasingly take place, our conversation moved on to corporate fundraising, and in particular, options for how to build valuable partnerships with companies if your charity does not work for a cause that is at the top of everyone's list. I asked Damien how he approached corporate fundraising when he was at Police Care UK, and in particular, how he used the very fact that his cause was niche to help his corporate partnership strategy succeed. Yes, so this is consistent with a common theme that we teach on our Corporate Partnerships Mastery Programme, which is don't be trying to appeal to everybody. Get super clear what the fit is and be focused on those kinds of companies where there is a match, there can be a match. And I'm reminded of um, 
some other initiatives you did when you, uh, I think the charity was Police Care UK, and you were very clear from the start that uh, it's an excellent cause, but it wasn't going to be the top of the list for some supporters and some companies out there. You were fine without that because it enabled you to absolutely be focused on the companies and donors that were most likely to care. Do you want to um, tell me the gist of, of what your approach was and how you used that niche to your advantage? Yeah. So a few years ago now, I can't even remember where I learned it, but it was something called the SW3 principle. And it's the idea that some will, some won't. So what? And that was so, so important to me as um, head of fundraising, communications and brand at Police Care, because there are only so many people who are absolutely supportive of police. I, I am not and was not uh, the propaganda arm for the police. It was not my job to try and convince people of the merits and values and importance and efficacies of the way the police operate and handle. It wasn't my um, role to talk about the, the merits and values of stop and search or anything to do with operational policing. The charity's job as the benevolent fund for the police service was to support the people within it and in their moment of need. And when it came to policing, you ended up with one in five uh, serving police personnel who got post-traumatic stress disorder. You'd got a police officer being injured every 20 minutes, every single day, and you'd got a police officer guaranteed almost to be injured within the first five years of their service. Those kind of things really do resonate. And it doesn't matter whether it's individual, whether it's trust and foundation, whether it's high net worth or corporate, there is a niche market. And really understanding that you're not there to try and convince 80 million people, 72, whatever the UK population is right now, by understanding and qualifying your market and saying, right, there are 2.6 million people maximum who are likely to find this cause appealing. There are 130 businesses who would find this cause appealing at scale. So rather than having a corporate prospect list that was a mile long and saying, right, we're going to go after this company, that company, every other company, and having a, not knowing where to go, you refine it down and say, right, these are the 20 companies that we want to work with. You do your due diligence, you do your background checks, you do your screening, you make sure that there's a proper values fit, that there are no ethical concerns or constraints, and that you're not going to find yourself in nuanced territory that you can't enter. Most charities will not touch anywhere that comes with firearms. When it comes to policing, firearms is part of the core business. Same as aviation. The, the police service run helicopters. So I can approach markets and territories at, at Police Care UK that no other charity could. So why would I fight to try and get in at KPMG, at EY, at um, Aberdeen Investments? When every other charity is there, why would I not go to the more niche specialist companies that have a, a strong values fit to my organization, to the, the work and mission of the charity, what we're trying to achieve, and then start developing the relationships? So body armor, it's, an, it's a very small market for them. It's military and uniform personnel. So core opportunity there because the military charities have been approaching them for years. So you coming in as a new entrant to the market and saying, you want something new and exciting and different? Well, you've been supplying Kevlar vests to the UK police service now for nearly half a century. How about we develop a relationship along those lines? And you start, you do it in a way that they recognize and they appreciate. And this is something else that 
commercial business does all the time. They network but they network in professionally sensitive ways and techniques. They put on awareness events, they put on pop-up events, they attend exhibitions, they, they run side events at major shows. So I went there. So I used to go to the security and policing conference, closed event for suppliers into the policing sector. These are people who are interested and are motivated to trying to work within the policing sector whether it be directly to individuals or through police forces. But they're my audience, they're my market. And actually proactively doing your work, cultivating your relationships and saying, right, I'll see you at security and policing. I'll see you at the UK Counterterrorism Expo. Can we grab a coffee at 11.30 in a side room because I want to talk to you about something? It's that kind of world that they understand. So you go to it. And it, taking all of those things into account and then saying, right, we're going to put on a special event that involves bringing high profile people within the policing world into an event that's purely about introducing you to the charity that is there to support them and their colleagues for life. And you're going to hear the stories about the impact of our work. Those are the kind of events that really stick out. And if you invest in that in the right way, you get the real opportunity to develop the relationships from the ground up and saying, look, this is not a quick, a quick burn. It's not a quick 10 grand here, gone next week. This is about building lasting relationships of value that you will cherish and that will matter to the people we're caring for. That's the, that's the approach and methodology we, we put in place. We ran a high profile event at New Scotland Yard. We invited the right people with the right message and they turned up. And as I remember it, um, many of the companies you'd invited, you didn't have any existing relationship with, yeah. but they received uh, a formal invitation. Um, and it, again, it wasn't signed by you, a fundraiser they'd never met. Uh, as I remember it, you had, had found someone they would respect to be hosting or inviting them. And that was some of the reason, in addition to the venue and the authority of that venue, that was some of the reason why you got such extraordinary take up for people to attend. And then the other thing I took from it when you last explained this to me was, unlike many charities, you didn't create that high profile event to raise money on the night. It was quite deliberately to to get them to take the first step to come and hear more. Yeah. Could you just remind me those those couple of points? Yeah. So if you want to develop a an event that you cannot not attend you find the one person and the, the the key individual and the key location that they want to be at see at and be seen at so in our case we use the new old new scotland yard the one that's down on uh, the embankment it had only just recently been uh, turned back into new scotland yard it was now operational you'd got the eternal flame that's attached to reception that's always on to remember um, the dead You've got the Book of Remembrance that's open right as you walk in at the entrance space and you then get invited and taken up to the top floor, which is opposite the London Eye, and into the open space atrium, which is full of the right kind of people that you would expect to see and expect to be seen with. And the invitation happened to say that the Commissioner of the Metropolis of London requests the pleasure of, insert name here, to a private reception to hear more about the work of Police Care UK this date, this time, don't forget your invitation and don't forget your security verification credentials. Those kind of things get people to RSVP. Now, we 
we did it right. We took some expert advice from um, other people. And um, I'll always be grateful to um, a guy called Giles Pegram, who was really helpful in building the right kind of approach and ask and how we frame this event. He was brilliant throughout. He gave excellent advice. And he talked about the merits of the invitation itself. It had to be something that would get past a PA. It would actually land on the desk unopened to the point where the person who it was addressed to was the one opening it. And I knew it worked when I had one corporate who will remain nameless, who said that because they worked remotely, their mailbox was actually at their office and the person who looked after their post looked after 20 other people's. They phoned the individual three times and said, you've got something in your mailbox you need to see. Hadn't opened it. It was still there unopened. But the way it sat in that mailbox was enough for the assistant to keep pestering the individual to say, there's something here you've got to see. They opened it. They contacted the RSVP'd and they were there. So that invitation had got them to where we needed them to be. And the event itself was geared for two things. One was networking so they could see the other people we'd invited. So they knew that they were in the right place. They were in the space that they should be at because everybody they would regard as being influential, important, powerful to us was there. And the number of sideways conversations that were going on, not even about the charity, that were going on before we even started the event proved to me that it worked. There were people who saw each other across the room, knew each other and said, I'll see you in 10 minutes. That's how you know you've got the right people in the room. Then they hear about the organization, the cause, and the call to action was not for money, although um, there was a very, very blatant and obvious statement that says, you know why you're here, but you're not here to give money tonight. You're here to arrange and commit to a meeting with, and we stood up the member of staff uh, who was leading on it and coordinating it. Yes, we made a joke of it. You know, they've only been here a few weeks and they've got an empty diary, so we expect it to be filled by the end of the night and all that kind of stuff to make it lighthearted. But it was very clear the action there was to get a meeting in the diary. They'd had a good experience, they'd committed to a meeting before they left, they left with the right information on the way out, and we got the meetings that we needed. We got 90% of the meetings we expected to get on that night. Uh, that's amazing. So this is a while ago now, so it doesn't need to be exact but from your memory of the letters that were sent out approximately what proportion rsvp'd and said yes i want to come and of those that showed up on the night you're saying approximately how many then agreed to a follow-up meeting yeah so uh from memory uh, we had uh, just over 80 percent rsvp'd um and uh of that 80 percent 75 percent of them were rsvp yeses 20% were RSVP knows and 5% we can't make it. There's another event on, but when's your next? But of those who RSVP to say, yes, they were coming, 95% turned up. This is unheard of for me within major giving, within corporate fundraising, within philanthropy. I've not had an event where the people who said they were going to turn up, turned up. And it's that kind of swell that even if, and we had some people who dropped out at very, very last minute, um, but they still wanted the information. They still wanted to be part of the event. They just couldn't be there in real time. So they weren't lost to us. But what it allowed us to do was go from a cold start. We'd never done anything like this. So to go from a cold start to having an event that achieved that kind of response rate and that level of conversion to meetings was what drove and incentivized us to do it again. And it, 
it was scheduled actually to be taking place two weeks ago, I think. And they'd planned to do it again in uh, early June. Unfortunately, I'm assuming that didn't happen. Um, but um, it, 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 it proved to us that the concept was right. It proved to us that the approach was right. If you get the right people at the right time with the right incentive to get, uh, to get there and have the right ask at the end of it, you've got a, a successful, viable um, solicitation and approach and cultivation stream. By not making it a cash ask on the night, we guaranteed that we were going to have the next meeting because we'd never be able to sell the merits and values of this organization that people never heard of in 20 minutes of speeches. Yeah. And especially if, if you know, the nature of each partnership might, might be a little different for diff- different kinds of companies. They might be saying yes for slightly different reasons. So it was unlike many charity events, it was unbelievably clear. The, prop- <laughs> the re- request was, if you're interested at all, here's what you do. Uh, you agree to a follow-up meeting with us, meters for coffee. And my memory from uh, when I read about this before, there was at least 30 or 40 uh, that agreed to that follow-up meeting. And then from that, again, there was a high proportion that went on to be a partner. Can you remember roughly how many partners came about through this overall strategy? I think the final figure uh, before I left was 26 were... um, committed supporters um, at the end of the process. Now, some of that was cash, some of it was in kind, some of it was, we, we want to do something, we don't yet know what. Um, and so there was there was a mix and a mishmash in here, but it was a very infant program that was starting from the ground up. So for us, the expectations on delivery for that first event were quite low. We'd expected to get one or two. So we absolutely exceeded our expectations with it. But what it meant was that it allowed us to build for the future. And these, these are companies who are not going away. They're not going anywhere. The people that we were dealing with might go away, but the reality is the industry and sector they were in, they were only gonna to go to like-minded or comparable companies. So getting the relationship right with the individual and the company meant that even if the person moved on, chances were you'd actually just have a new prospect to be able to go to. And you, you then introduce it, oh, I see you've moved to so-and-so. Can we have a talk about here as well? And, and it, it, it's that kind of approach that does work. But we delivered an event in a way that they would expect to see. They're used to attending roadshows. They're used to attending drinks receptions. They're used to attending events that don't come with a cash ask in that moment. They're used to building a network. And that's what we delivered. And if some of the listeners are liking the idea, and they're certainly, goodness knows, so many, so many charities are very niche and they feel like they're not a mainstream uh, cause that's that's top of everyone's list. If there are listeners in that boat and they don't currently have that kind of venue at their disposal and they don't currently have that true authority figure that this kind of company would say yes to, what could they do? Presumably, we can't all get the most famous celebrity, but if we know what sector we have decided to focus on, we absolutely can start to build relationships with the kinds of authority figures we would like to be our chair or do the inviting. And we can start to ask who, you know, people who are our current friends if they have access to that kind of venue. These are these are solvable problems, even in the context of a small charity in a in a local geographical area. If you've got a very niche organization, you have got the best opportunity to find the most committed individuals that you could ever need to deliver your, your, what you're looking for. And 
once you've got one person, it's a it's a technique that we talk about time and time again. I've heard you and others talking about this so many times. You must be blue in the face saying it. But asking people, who do you know? And it's even easier if you know who you're trying to get to. And if you know who they know, the ability for you to be able to work it up and go, right, I think you probably know this person. So I'm going to say, you don't happen to know so-and-so, do you? And give them the opportunity to say, well, yes, I do. Would you like an introduction? Giving them the opportunity to feel special and feel as though they're contributing and adding value to your work is the single greatest gift we can give to somebody beyond the thanks and appreciation of a financial ask. Yes, and one opportunity I think there is now more than ever and something we go into in some depth in the Corporate Mastery Programme is that now almost every charity has had to adapt its service delivery strategy into areas where it is no longer expert. It may be an expert in child protection, but is it an expert at delivering things remotely? Is it an expert in all of the technologies required to deliver counselling remotely or whatever the thing might be? If all our charities are now having to adapt and they are no longer expert at all elements of that model, there's such an opportunity because there are companies out there that are good at any one of solving any one of those problems. And many of those companies would be only too happy, at the very least, to offer advice and at most potentially be involved in helping a charity more efficiently deliver an excellent solution there. So I think now more than ever, the opportunity for building strategic partnerships where the company is genuinely adding big, big value rather than just some cash, I think more than ever now there's an opportunity for that. There is. And I think there are some charities doing it really, really well. Um, and one of my favourite charities is Missing People because the relationships that they have been able to build with the likes of Deliveroo and Royal Mail are the kind of transformative partnerships that everybody should aspire to do. We need to be able to reach out to people across the country when somebody goes missing, whether it's an adult or a child. We need to have eyes on the ground across the country looking out for that individual to see if we can find them. Who has the most people on the ground? The postal network and the delivery network. They also had a, a great partnership with um, Palmer and Harvey to put adverts on the side of their delivery wagons. So there were missing people alerts on the back of Palmer and Harvey wagons across the country. It's that kind of approach to strategic partnerships that I have admired for years. And I happen to know the fundraising team, the partnerships team, everything that uh, missing people. And I can only hold them in high regard because they really, truly understand how a transformative partnership and one that is based on mutual benefit is going to deliver results for both sides. Well said, Damien. I need to let you get away very soon. I'd love to chat on and on. But to, to wrap this up fairly quickly, if people would like to, to get in touch, are you on Twitter or LinkedIn? Where could people find you? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn and uh, Twitter. By all means, find me. So it's at Damien Chapman UK and forward slash Damien Chapman UK uh, for Twitter and LinkedIn. And I know you're very busy, not only in your own charity, but helping out various special interests groups and so on so um doubtless people will be able to see you on one of those committees or platforms or at iof convention sooner or later when the world returns a little to normal for now damien uh, so many good ideas so much uh, helpful advice thank you very much for sharing it i really enjoyed our chat until the next time damien chapman 
thank you for appearing on the podcast thank you thank you damien bye-bye no worries cheers i hope you found damien's approach to corporate fundraising helpful if you're interested in improving your results in corporate partnerships or major gifts then do check out our corporate mastery and major gifts mastery programs which give you effective strategies through a blend of training and individual coaching support all designed to help you overcome the challenges of the pandemic and win valuable strategic partnerships and major gifts for your charity. If you'd like to find out more, go to www.brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services. And if you'd like to see the episode notes from my chat with Damien, you can find those on the blog and podcast section of the website. And if you want to get in touch or share this episode, Thank you very much for your help. We would love to hear from you. And we're both on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Damien is at Damien Chapman UK and I am at Woods underscore Rob. Finally, thank you so much for listening today. Until the next time, stay safe and good luck with all your efforts to make a positive difference this year of all years. Mm-hmm.